This summer we've been going through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Today we come to the latter part of chapter 4. I'd like to invite you to take a Bible. It's page 978, 978 in these Bibles in the pews. John Kinzer will preach next Sunday, and he's got two chapters to cover. Uh, no, that, uh, I'm sure he will do a masterful job of wrapping up the entire letter as we finish our study in the book of Ephesians. Last Sunday afternoon, I had the privilege of preaching in a church of another denomination for the funeral of Barbara's mother. And thank you for all the cards and things that Barbara's received uh, that she's trying to acknowledge in the mail back to you. But when Barb's dad, her dad passed away 11 years ago, I was not allowed to say anything, <laughs> being a PCA pastor. So I was grateful to have the opportunity to preach, and I preached essentially the sermon I preached here from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, back about a month ago. And it was, um, it was a very, very special time there. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17, he's writing now, telling these believers in Ephesus, Paul's in jail, he's in a Roman jail, he's writing back, telling these people he had led to Christ years ago how they need to live as believers and not as they once lived. Hear God's word beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Graham and Gladys Staines were a married couple in Australia, and they met Jesus Christ. And their lives were changed. They were transformed by the gospel. And as a married couple, they wanted to share that gospel with others, so... They chose India, and they crossed many cultural barriers and moved to India where they ministered and helped the poorest of the poor and especially those who suffered from leprosy. They had a daughter, and they had two sons whom they were raising to follow in their footsteps of serving Christ. And that service for their family came at a very great cost. By crossing those cultural barriers, 
so it was that this Jewish man years before had walked into this basically Gentile large metropolitan city of Ephesus and had preached the gospel. And he had preached the gospel and uh, literally the city had been changed, had been turned upside down, and a riot ensued. And so now years later, the Apostle Paul is writing back from a Roman jail and he is talking to those whose lives had been transformed by the gospel. And he's giving instructions to them as to how they are to live as followers of Christ. We've got a lot to cover. I'll focus on verses 17 and following, and then very quickly over verse 25 and following that. He begins with a statement of authority when he says, This I say and testify in the Lord. He's reminding them that this was just not his opinion, this was just not his point of view, but this was the authority from God himself. And he tells them they must not live as they lived in their former lives. Many of them, uh, if not most, were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. They had worshipped at the temple of Diana, the pagan goddess of fertility. And there was temple prostitution there at the temple. They had participated in, in all of this. And he's stressing now that as believers, they needed to abandon their former manner of life. Well, how did the Gentiles live? He's going to give a four-stage spiraling down, describing it in four phrases. First, the downward spiral begins with hardness. It says in verse 18, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That word hardness meant a stone harder than marble. And so, in our terms, we would say, this person just has a heart of stone. They are callous. There's no feeling. There's no empathy, mercy for anyone else. It's the same description that was used when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in a synagogue. And the leaders of the synagogue rose up and wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus because he had healed that man on a Sabbath day. And it says they had hardness of heart. That's the term that's being used here. And so the hardening of the heart describes the inability because of the unwillingness to respond to God's truth. Romans 1 says, men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so this has been a very aggressive suppression of the truth of God. That's the first stage of the spiraling down. The second is darkness. From hardness, it moves to darkness. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that they do not have keen intellects. They may have had the best education of their day, like Paul had had. But it's an absence of spiritual discernment. It's an absence of spiritual understanding. It's what Paul says in Romans, that their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Have you ever, have you ever Christian, have you ever tried to share your faith with a non-believing family member or friend, and they look at you and say, as though, are you from Mars? I was talking to a a very well-educated student one day, and this person stopped me. I was telling them about why Christ came, that it was God's Son, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and this person started laughing and said, Are you listening to what you're saying? This is science fiction. And I said, You're right. It's ludicrous. Who would think something like this up? I said that back to them. What human would think up the idea of substituting a son for spiritually dead people. When that happens, continue. We should continue to give a reasoned defense for the faith within us, as we are told to do in Peter. But primarily, in most cases, it's not a struggle of explanation. It's a struggle of illumination. 
I won't ask you to show your hands, but I, my question would be, how many of you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ many times before it ever made sense? I know I did. Hundreds. Maybe thousands of times. And then when I understood it, it was as though I heard it for the first time. Oh, that's what this is. It's more a matter of illumination than explanation. For God to turn on the lights, that's what I mean by illumination. And so from hardness to darkness, the third stage of the spiraling down, verse 18, refers to deadness, that they are alienated from the life of God. The prophet Isaiah said, this is when a person arrives at the point of calling evil good and good evil. And then the fourth stage, you might say, the fourth level of the spiraling down is recklessness. Verse 19 says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now, if I was a psychologist, I would explain it in psychological terms. They refer to the hedonist dilemma. You know what a hedonist is, right? Live for pleasure, live for your own pleasure. The hedonist dilemma is this. Pleasures fully indulged cease to please. Pleasures fully indulged cease to please. So there is a dynamic aspect to sin. It's not static, it's dynamic. It's always moving. And there's always the law of diminishing returns. And that's why... A person that uses pornography starts with soft pornography, but doesn't, they never remain there. It gets harder and harder and harder, just like the drug habit. Any, no one who, and there are many, I mean, I, I don't talk to alcoholics that started out saying, I want to be an alcoholic. The drug addict did not start out saying, I plan to become an ad, addicted to this. The, and so sensuality always progresses. It always progresses. And that's why if you or I, what Paul's warning is, say, well, I'll just, nobody's going to know. I, look, at least, look how much I'm suffering. At least God owes this to me. Can I have a little pleasure? And so here's the problem. Once you do that, you're going to be different. You will not be the same as you were before you did that. And therefore, now your, your level of consciousness has changed. And so it says our consciences become callous. They are beyond feeling. When I started learning to play the guitar right out of the sixth grade, I remember pressing down on these metal strings and going home saying, oh, man, it was so tender. And the second day, they were so sore. And by the third day, guess what happened by the fourth day? The feeling's gone, and the skin becomes calloused. And so for years, for years, it was like, you know, I hardly felt anything on the end of my fingers. And that's what he talks about our conscience. As it spirals down, it becomes callous to, those, to sensuality. R.C. Sproul, many of you have read his books, noted theologian, older in his years now. He wrote that when he was a teenager, he remembered his first sexual encounter. And he went home and he felt so guilty, he vomited. And he said three times later, and he felt nothing. Our consciences are quickly cauterized. They're quickly calloused. And Paul warns them about that. Here it says, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this is the description of the progression of evil. Now, if you're reading this and you're not familiar with Ephesians, just on the surface, you say, this is harsh. Who was Paul? Who did he think he was? This is a hard, hard critique of culture and their backgrounds and what Ephesus was like. And that's why I think he said, I testify to the Lord. He wanted them to know this is just not my opinion. 
This does not mean that every individual who does not have Christ is perfectly described here. But it's fair to say that sin moves in a direction. And as hearts are changed, cultures are changed. And so there may be much knowledge, but at the same time, if there's no wisdom, that's not the same thing. The understanding is darkened and the person is separated from the life of God. So believer, how do you view the world? As a college student, I was involved in what was called the Campus Crusade for Christ, the international ministry. And I remember a student from the Midwest, from a large university, I remember hearing him say that uh, a staff person with Campus Crusade and he were standing one day on top of a tall building at their university and there were either hundreds or thousands of students walking. It was in, in cl- right between classes. And the staff guy said to him, what do you see down there? He said, well, I see, I see a bunch of students walking, hundreds. And he said, what do you see? He said, well, I see hundreds of students that are either going to heaven or hell. And I want to invest my life in making the difference. How do you see the world? How do I see the world? And here, we have to see it the way God sees it. And that's what's described here. Now, let me just say this before I move to the next section. I try to preach. When I'm preaching, I try to think, if I was an unbeliever listening to this, what would I be hearing? That's just, that's just part of my wiring. There's an evangelist inside of me who's always trying to get out. And if I was listening to this, if I could turn back the hands of, well, the pages of the calendar to before I came to faith in Christ, I would be thinking darkened in understanding, hardened, callous. That's the description of Christians. Doesn't the world see us as darkened in our understanding, of calloused of not caring for people, and of hardened in conscience? It does. It's just the flip-flop of this. Now, here's the advantage the Christian has over the unbeliever. We've been there. I know, I know what you may be thinking. Like when the person says, do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear what you're saying? God, Son, cross, resurrection. Do you realize how ridiculous that sounds? The difference is, I've sat where you're sitting. I know what you're thinking. But God has opened my eyes to see this. And let's move on. The new wardrobe. Boy, this thing is target rich. I could go off in 50 directions. I'm disciplining myself to get through this passage. Look at the contrast in verse 20. He's given this very bad picture. Y'all know what I mean by target rich? Wasn't it Schwarzenegger that said that when we first went into Iraq, it was a target rich environment? I'm sorry. That's that's when I look at the passage. It is a target rich uh, interpretive environment right here. Verse 20, but that is not what you learned. Here's the contrast. It's like he undoes everything he said. Don't be this, 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 and this, but that is not what you learned. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, speaking of Jesus, as the truth is in Jesus. He says, but what I just described, that's not what you learned from me. They were taught the exact opposite. Jesus was the subject of their instruction. And then in verse 21, he says Jesus was actually their teacher. It says, assuming that you have heard about him. Interesting, the word about is not in the Greek language. So it can be translated, assuming you have heard him. You've heard his voice. When Christ said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me, he did not mean just those who were alive at the time he was on earth. I look out every Sunday and I can see faces of people that, from what you've told me or told others, you have come to faith in Christ, you have 
believed this within the past year or two or three. And it's not necessarily from one particular sermon or the sermons. It's from talking to other people in the church. It's from being at home Bible studies. It's from individuals sharing their faith with you. And you put all that together and you said, I came to a saving knowledge of Christ. My life's been transformed. I've met him. One of the most unusual I've met, and he's now moved away, but (laughs) he came to know Christ. He received Christ when he said he would be driving back and forth to Georgia Southern when he was a student, and he set the Bible by his seat, and he would read the Bible while he was driving. I'm not recommending that. His parents were going through a divorce, and he was in great pain, and there was a Christian friend, a girl there from this church that talked to him and said, you need God in your life. You need to know Christ. And so he started reading the Bible. When I asked him, He was a senior by then, and I said, how have you spent your years at Georgia Southern? (laughs) The first service didn't think this was funny, what I'm getting ready to tell you. I thought it was kind of humorous. So I said, how have you spent your years at Georgia Southern? He looked at me, and he said, I was drunk. (laughs) It was a statement to summarize three years. I thought that was kind of funny. Y'all are too spiritual. (laughs) Y'all don't see any humor in that. I told him I thought it was funny. Radically converted. Radically converted. Uh, so what had happened? You came to know Christ. You came to know him, not just about Christ, not just verses about Christ. You came to know him. And he changed your life. How did that happen? You heard what we call the good news and bad news. Here's the abbreviated, for, uh, here's the abbreviated summary of that. And that is that, that, our, that God created us to know him, uh, but... We sinned against him, and we now are born spiritually dead, even as our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They broke his commandment, and they sinned, and that resulted in them dying spiritually. So we are born spiritually dead, and because of that, we commit sins. We commit crimes against God, and he says the punishment or wages of those is death. It's natural to think, it's natural for all of us to think, well, if, if, if God exists, if I've, and I have not lived up to his standard, then I, surely I can do enough good things to make me right with God. I can live according to some moral code, either through religion or some other way. I'll be a good person. If I try not good enough, whether I make it or not, God will see my intentions. He'll say that, see that I good, had good motives. He'll weigh all that, and he'll accept me into his kingdom. But the problem is, all those good things cannot do away with our problems of sin and death. That's the bad news. Now the good news. God is loving and merciful, and in his love he sent a substitute to take the punishment for our sin. That was Jesus, who became a man. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, and then he allowed himself to be arrested, tried, convicted, nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. He had to be perfect. He had to be a perfect substitute. When he was on that cross, God put all my sin on him and punished him in my place. He took the punishment and the penalty for my sins... He made a complete payment. He died on the cross. This was the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a tomb. His enemies thought that was the last they would see of him. But three days later, he rose physically, bodily from the grave. He appeared to more than a 1,000 people over 40 days. He ascended into heaven, but before he did, he told his disciples, his followers, that they were to go into all the world, to all nations, and tell people what God had done and to offer the gift of eternal life through Christ. How do you receive the gift of eternal life? You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was perfect, that he died in your place, that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, 
that when he died, God the Father put your sins on Jesus, punished him in your place, and now you turn from going your own way, living for yourself, and turn toward him, living for him. And when that happens, you meet Jesus, as he's talking about here. And you begin to live differently, as described in verses 22 and following. So as believers, we are to put off the old self, which belongs, as it says in the text, your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. We are born with an old man when we are physically born. When we are spiritually born again, we receive a new, a new man, a new self. But the old one's still there. There was an Alfred Hitchcock episode where a person gets buried with a corpse thinking that somebody's going to dig him up. I don't know if y'all ever saw that one. And then at the end, you know, the person lights a lighter and finds out that the corpse is the person that's supposed to dig them up. <laughs> and the episode ends with these screams coming up from under the dirt. It's funny what you remember when you're 10 years old when I saw that. We've still got the old man. He's right here. And guess what? The clothes he wears are real comfortable. They're walking dead. They're walkers, folks. I mean, you know, this is, man, this, this is the kind of shirt you want to put on when you get home. This is like, oh, man, I've worn this for 15 years, this plaid shirt. I know they're holes in it, but it feels so good. And these pants, these shoes, don't you have some clothes like that in your house? Don't nod your head. They feel good. They feel good. Well, the old man feels good. I, yeah, I, know, I know him. I know his ways, his habits, and they were easy, and they were natural, and we're told to put him off. And we're told to put on these new things. He says we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And then fourth, not third, in verse 24, put on the new self. So we have this new, we've, re, we've received the new self. And we're to, we're to put him on, verse 24, have put on the new man who after God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. This new self is the new relationship we have with Christ that has given us a new orientation to life. And it changes us to be in likeness to the conformity to the image of Christ. You don't put on the new strictly by putting off the old. You can put off the old and not put on the new. I may lose my temper with my family. I say, well, I shouldn't do that. Okay, I repent and I put off the old. But I haven't put on the new which goes and makes restitution and changes and asks for forgiveness. So all this is through God's grace. Please don't hear this like this is just our effort. A couple of observations, and I'll wrap this up. Believer, if you are struggling with sin and you think you are alone, you are not. Christian growth is never easy. It's never been easy for anyone. Christians through the ages have wrestled with every aspect of Christian growth, purity, righteousness. And so if you feel it's difficult, you are not strange. You are not unique. Until you and I are with the Lord, we will struggle with these things. It will be a fight to the death. The old man's patterns and thought and deeds leave deep, habitual ruts in our lives. And if you do not know this, and you believe that you are a Christian, that you know Christ, if you don't have a keen awareness of this struggle and how hard this is, I would imagine you're either living according to some formula of holiness which leaves out any serious self-examination or you're not really pursuing Christ-likeness or, and maybe this is true especially for us Southerners, 
Or we are too terrified of the consequences of what would happen if we truly told someone else what's going on on the inside. And so we act like it doesn't exist. True growth does not just put off the old ways, it puts on the new man. Now, remember this, I'm going to summarize the last paragraph in about 60 seconds. They're all examples of putting on the new, putting off the old, putting on the new. Verse 25 speaks of lying. Put away falsehood, it says, speak the truth. Put off the old, put on the new. Verse 26, be angry, and yet do not sin. Verse 28 speaks to the person who steals. Stop stealing, put off. In fact, begin to provide for others by working with your own hands and making an honest income, put on. Verse 29, don't use speech which corrupts or damages others, tears others down. Instead, use speech which is edifying to others. Verse 31, put off, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. Verse 32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Ooh, that's the knockout punch at the end, it, forgive others. And there's that standard we find all through the New Testament as God forgave you, which is total, complete. Do you know Christ this morning? If you're not a believer, perhaps God is at work in your life and you don't. You realize you're seeking something that you weren't seeking before. You need to know Christ to believe in him, to put your trust and faith in him. I'd urge you to do that today. And he changes you from the inside out. Gladys and Graham Staines. They went to India. They served while they were there. They had two sons, Timothy and Philip, ages 8 and 10. They had a daughter. January 23rd, 1999, they'd been there 18 years. Graham and their two sons are in their vehicle. They have made a long trip. They are parked in a very remote village, and they go to sleep. And a group of militant Hindus who knew who they were doused their car with gasoline, set it on fire. Then the very ones who set it afire prevented the stains from getting out. They kept those trying to rescue them at bay. The three of them were burned alive. The horrific incident that I would imagine most of you in here read about back years ago, or at least heard of, it brought world attention. But even more attention was given to Gladys's response to the murder of her husband and her sons. She wrote, and this was published in a newspaper in India, when I learned that my family was dead, I said to my daughter, we'll forgive them, won't we? And she said, yes, mummy, we will. And she explained, the mom did, forgiveness brings healing. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. How was I able to forgive? Well, the truth is that I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me. Because I have Jesus in my life, it is possible for me to forgive others. Her words are a great reflection of these closing words from Ephesians 4. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. But there's more. After reports of Gladys's forgiving heart circulated in India, another missionary told that he was speaking to a man one day and he gave him a gospel booklet, a little booklet telling about how to know Christ. And after reading it, the Indian said, Is this the same Jesus that Gladys Staines believes in? And the missionary said, yes. And he said, I want to know that Jesus. When what we say and what we do and what we think is empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
God grants us the power of the gospel to minister to others. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you transform us. You transform us from addictions and habits and things that we are prisoners to. You give us insight and understanding to your will. We pray for a sense of urgency to recognize the brevity of life, that we might follow you and serve you, that we might have concern for the souls of others. We pray that you would lead and guide us in our families, uh, in our workplace, in our relationships, in all aspects of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your order of worship there at the end. You have the words to the doxology. Please stand, if you will, and receive God's blessing, the benediction, and we'll remain standing and sing together the doxology. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.